on this episode of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about funding innovation with Caribou Honig from InsureTech Connect and Simperverans. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. And we are back with another lovely episode. My awesome co-host, Rob Galbraith. Rob, how's it going down in San Antonio? It's going great, James. A uh, little wintry weather this morning, but the sun is back outside. It's warming up. So this is a beautiful time of year to be in Texas. Yes, it is. It's a, it was a little chilly this morning. I, I joined a men's workout group called F3, and we get together three days a week. And there's a ton of locations down in San Antonio. Totally free. Nobody pays any money. We meet at 5.30 in the morning in a public park, right? Oof. So it's a, it, it looks kind of shady. It's like 20 dudes getting together in a circle and, and then working out like in the pitch black. It was exciting. But today it was 38 degrees or 42 degrees and, 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 and rainy. So it, it was a bit chilly. So I am, I am looking forward to warmer weather with us, looking like he's ready for the warmer weather. Like he's just ready for summertime. It's like that when, when the, the character from Frozen, you know, the, the snowman talks about <laughs> in summer. You look like you're ready for summertime. So, Caribou Honig, Caribou, how you doing, buddy? I'm great, James. Uh, thanks to you and Rob for having me here. You know, I I'm yeah. probably look ready for summertime because I just got back from vacation uh, ah, in Belize. See, you have the glow. I got you the, the glow going yes. on. Yeah. And a little yeah, sunbeam so, next to me here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little, little, um, English-speaking country uh, just south of Mexico. Yeah, it, it was actually quite lovely, um, I, I got to say. Yeah. And I uh, got to do some snorkeling and, you know, saw a Ooh. couple lobsters wandering around and they saw me, um, all that good stuff. And they said, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> and, like, I went I went snorkeling in Hawaii a few, like, like three months ago. And I had the first time this has ever happened to me. Like, multiple sea turtles came swimming, like big ones, you know. It was awesome. It's amazing. Right? Did, did you have them on the podcast? I, I wish I could have. <laughs> I did take I did take photos of them. Wouldn't that be amazing? And wouldn't it be hilarious if it was like Finding Nemo and they're like, "Whoa, <laughs> that Australian <laughs> current was amazing, <laughs> dude." That that sounds great. I've never been to Belize. I've always wanted to go. So I'm going to talk to you after the show. Get your tips on what resort to go to, where to stay, because it's a easy I'd, flight. I'd be happy to. It sounds like you might need uh, some warm weather. There, oh, so. I, dude, I always need warm weather. I'm a Southern boy. I was born in Louisiana. Like I was born in the heat. I was born for the heat. Rob, Rob's the, he's got ice in his veins. He, he was born, you know, he was, he was raised up in Michigan, you know, they got here since they could. Like ice, ice is a sport to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to talk about uh, funding innovation today. Now, I'm, I'm excited about it because we had you on a couple of years ago. So it's been a little, it's been a minute. <laughs> and, um, we we talked a lot about InsureTech Connect, and we're gonna we're gonna touch on ITC. I mean, we can't you can't not talk about the largest you know conference in insurance tech. So we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna you know revisit the topic of how to properly spell InsureTech. And no, <laughs> we're not gonna go. It's obviously some people more people have chosen the E than than not. So it is what it is. But um, w w let's let's start out and just talk about your your background again because it's been a couple of years. You uh, you got a, a bachelor's in physics and philosophy from uh, this this little small college um, on the sh the shore of a river near Boston uh, called Harvard. 
next to Harvard Yard. Got an MBA from literally my favorite campus on the planet, University of Virginia. Darden School, amazing. Love, love Darden School and, and UVA. I got to go there on a case competition when I was in college in the business school at A&M. And I was in grad, the master's in, in MIS in, in the business school and got to do a competition over there at UVA and loved it. Amazing. And then you went to UVA for, for law school, uh, for that, that joint JD MBA program that I'd heard so much about. So you, you did, you did a really great circuit on education. And then you ended up going in to a, a really interesting career across, uh, communications, uh, finance with Capital One, QED investors. Then you, you know, you, you hopped through a, a, some really interesting things until, um, you kind of arrive at insurance. And so I, I would just like to, to understand what the the path that led to insurance and and how that's become a one you know a big a big part of what you what you do professionally. Yeah, th- thanks, James. Um, so you know, when you summarize it like that, you know, it doesn't quite feel like twenty five thirty years, but it's it's been something like that now. Um, look, Capital One, my formative uh, first and only real job, you know, sort of cutting my teeth on how to use data in business strategies. And uh, I, I still remember, like the thing which really drew me to the company at a mission level, like what it was trying to accomplish. Like my dream as a little boy was not to go peddling credit cards, right? But when you heard the founders speak about what the mission, what the crusade of this company was, it was to transform industries through the power of information. Like, okay, that's kind of interesting, and that's especially interesting if you're, you know physics undergrad, geeky, that, that kind of way, where it's like, oh yeah, information is kind of, kind of important, kind of interesting. Also, like I got to go through hyper growth there, right? You know, 1200 employees when I started, 20,000 when I left. Uh, like there was, there was one year, I think it was 97 or 98. We went from 4,000 employees or 5,000 employees to 8,000 in a year. <laughs> and, and that means with some attrition, like basically by the end of the year, every other person who was there had less than 12 months of tenure. I joined in like 96, so I was an old grizzled veteran by by that uh, by that standard. So uh, there's so many learnings and, you know, people talk about like the PayPal mafia and stuff like that, right? There's the Capital One diaspora. Mm-hmm. There's lots of people who've been very successful who came out of that same kind of, you know, training of it being their first and only real job. Um, uh, still, you know, it, it sort of grew and uh, eventually uh, either I outgrew it or more likely it outgrew me. Uh, but left there in early 2006, uh, took a little time off, watched Netflix, played with, the, played with my kids, listened to the universe, um, reconnected with a couple other former Capital One executives and co-founded QED Investors. Um, uh, you know, we, we sort of didn't quite know what we were doing, uh, but um, had the opportunity to learn on the job and, um, you know, bring some of our, our experience and our assets of, you know, having helped to to launch and grow Capital One um, and bring that to another generation, really, of entrepreneurs, uh, not just in fintech, but in other areas, ad tech and uh, ed tech even and things like that. And, and of course, a little bit of insure tech. I mean, I, we, people thought we knew all sorts of financial services. We didn't. We knew some, uh, but we knew data. And of course, insurance, so data intensive. So we would get, you know, the occasional insure tech deal, even before insure tech was a thing. Like, um, you know, I, I led investment for us in a, in a telematics, uh, company in 2011. I actually had a, an exit in telematics in 2015. Like, <laughs> how's that for like, call, call that an uh, early exit. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, look, 2015 
2016 smelled like something interesting was about to happen in InsureTech. Uh, and so, you know, that, that, that led to me, okay, I'll, I'll lead the charge for the firm on what's going on there and looking around for good insure tech conference, couldn't really find anything that fit the needs of what I needed to, to get out of it. So, you know, necessity is the mother invention, uh, luckily connected with Jay Weintraub who knew what he was doing and actually creating a conference around this and ended up co-founding ITC. And then that yeah. was so interesting, right? It was so much fun, uh, much more than I thought it would be like, oh, creating a conference, that, that can't be that interesting. Right? Oh, no, it is social engineering at its best. Right? It's about <laughs> how do you create value to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people at once? Like, there's so much to it. Um, and uh, so it, it reminded me, it's just a scratch outside the scope of QED. Uh, and QED itself at the time was going to sort of really refocus on the sort of core banking side of fintech. Um, yeah. So uh, parted ways in early 2017 on, on what I think are very good terms, um, launched another conference with Jay focused on impact of technology on the workplace, you know, future of work, um, things like that. Uh, and in the course of doing that, got to know a couple guys who were launching a new boutique VC fund that really reminded me of a lot of the best of QED in its early days, focused on just that topic. What I like to call, you know, any startup that's trying to drive the success of employers or their employees. Like that's in scope for this fund, Semperverance, um, that these guys were, were launching and got to know them. And, you know, I sort of first became, actually first became an investor, uh, broke my own rules and made a small investment, then became an advisor, then joined their investment committee, then early 2020 with the fund two, became a general partner in the fund. Um, so now that, that's most of what I do. And I'm not, you know, making a nuisance of myself generally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it, 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 there's, there's so much connectivity between, uh, the workplace uh, with between banking and insurance. Of course, the in, entire dang insurance industry spun out of loan contracts three thousand years ago. So I mean, like it's 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 uh, they've been connected at the hip for millennia, literally. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I will admit I've been. I mean, truth is, I know very little about almost everything. Um, I know a little bit about some things, uh, but I've got a decent appetite to like learn more. Um, mm -hmm. whether I can use it directly or not, eh, I like learning. And so, you know, my partners are much more knowledgeable about things like brokers, especially like benefits brokers. They're much more knowledgeable about things like health insurance, right? So I'm getting the chance to actually, you know, hopefully make a little contribution on the venture side and on the insure tech and fintech side for the firm. But I'm also sucking in as much knowledge as I can. Just about like, okay, how does this part of the world work? And then what can that tell me about other parts that I thought I knew about a bunch about that maybe like I can unlock some new ideas there too. Yeah. It's really challenging even just inside of insurance to get your head around everything because as soon as you think, you know, and Rob and I have talked about this a bunch, but as soon as you think, you know, a corner of this industry, you get your mind blown and you, uh, you think you understand what policy administration is. I mean, something pretty fundamental to insurance, right? Is policies. And you start diving down the rabbit hole and you go, I don't know enough. Then you talk to, you know, three policy administrators and then you, then you say, okay, well, I've got to understand underwriting if I understand policy. And then I got to understand billing and, uh, you know, portals. And then I got to understand, I got to, you know, these are, these are really fundamental parts of like how the insurance industry works, not just technology. And it's a, it's a limitless uh, pit. And that's just, that, that's just commercial insurance. You go to health, life, disability, then you go to, you know, you, you go to workplace tech, like, like you're, you're doing with ladder, human interest, pinwheel 
Clio, Spring Health Care, at Healthcare Tech. I mean, these uh, each one of these is probably a five-year rabbit hole. You could just dive down and well, to try to understand the problem they're solving. And look, that, that's why I'm a VC and not a founder, right? Like I'm not yeah. diving so deep in that I actually understand anything. Um, but that's <laughs> not my job. Like actually, you know, and, and, and my partners paid me a good compliment, right? I, I think they actually figured out what might be the thing I'm good at. Um, if there's anything, right, this would be it. They pointed out that I've got really good timing. Like, oh, you went and joined Capital One at 1,200 employees hmm, at a time where like the credit card industry was growing in part because the, the technology to enable it to do things in more than just a, okay, you walk into a branch and if they like how you look, then you get a credit card. Like that was pretty good timing, it turns out. You know, okay, fine, score one on, on that. And then, you know, launching a venture capital firm with a heavy emphasis on fintech in 2008. Actually, really good timing. Uh, like in hindsight now, we know, oh, yeah, that was like the golden age of fintech was from the financial crisis, maybe to, you know, uh, COVID. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but like that was, yeah, pretty good timing. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously, obviously, I, I knew it at the time. At the, at the time we were doing that. Oh, yeah, of course, that's that's the the right decision to make. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah, launch an insure tech conference um, in 2016, right? Well, okay, that's probably decent timing there. And then, oh, you know, start getting involved in this future work thing around 2019 or so. Yeah, I, you know, it turns out future work started to become a, a prominent board level issue around 2020. I don't know why, something about COVID. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, you know, whether it's better to be uh, lucky or smart, Right. I feel like I've got good timing at least. And, and how about, a, you know, how about a little bit of both, right? <laughs> a little bit of both is okay. Uh, but, but it also means like I'm pretty good at picking out, you know, when sort of big inflection points, right? Almost more macro trend on these things than micro trend. You know, I'm, I'm okay on the micro, but, um, you know, I, I think probably my best prediction, public prediction at least that I've, I've, gone on record about was like, oh yeah, around 2016, 2017 saying, oh yeah, the APIification of insurance. Like, yeah. mm, you know, now that was just, if you spent a decade in what was going on in fintech and banking, it's like, oh yeah, of course insurance is going to follow that five to eight years later. And that's one of the big moves. And da, da, da. But like, I sort of feel like when I said it at the time, a lot, most insurance folks said, well, you know, first they said, what's an API, but then they said, oh, why yeah. do you think that's <laughs> actually going to like matter? Um, and I think that, you know, that's what I'm, I'm probably proud of sort of going on record for. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit more about investments later and how people fund innovation and get started. Uh, we're going to talk about bootstrapping versus venture capital and, uh, and everything down that, down that path. Um, I think we had, we had, we had some other questions too. And I'll let Rob, Rob go, and then we'll, we'll circle back around to, to venture capital. Rob. Yeah, James, I think just teeing up that dialogue, Caribou, one typical question we, we ask every guest is to, uh, allow our audience to have a little bit of a window into your life, kind of what is a, a week in the life of Caribou holding look like? And in particular, you know, you kind of, uh, mentioned, that balance between you're not going to be really uh, down in the weeds, right? Down in the dirt on some things, but yet having that macro view. And I, I do find it, um, there's a balance there, right? In terms of like having enough insight where, you know, you may not see the individual pieces, but you start to see the mosaic and then really just uh, fluff, right? Just kind of, you know, I saw somebody the other day put on Twitter, you know, 
there's a reason that I don't pay for free advice because it's worth, you know, what I spend on it. Um, so I, sometimes I, I struggle with that dichotomy, right? It's like, uh, as somebody that wrote a book on insurance, I, I have gotten so many questions since the end of insurance come out that are very domain specific that I feel wholly inadequate on answering. I feel bad about that. So just kind of curious, you know, so many people know you from so many different aspects of your life. Give us a picture of, I guess, the, the full caribou honing and profile, if you will. Yeah. So, so let's start with expectation setting. It's damn boring. Right. I'm not an interesting person. And that's for sure. Um, if you ask my kids now 19 and 21, what I do, you know, what a, what a week in the life looks like, they would say, well, I'm pretty sure dad that you play world of Warcraft for half the day. Uh, that, that's, that's as far as they can tell must be it. Right. Um, you know, uh, most of my days start in the morning with walking the dogs and they end in the, in the evening with walking the dogs. Uh, like that's part of the, the real day in the life too. Although actually like so my favorite parts of the day are where I'm walking the dogs, throw on the, the AirPods, and I give Jay a call and say, hey, what's up? What's going nice. on with the latest conference you're doing? Um, you know, how can I help? Uh, but I, like that actually is, is a very satisfying part of my day, talking to entrepreneurs. Right? That is core in the life of, of being a VC. And like yesterday morning, I started out my week, you know, trying to come back from Belize here and, and I, I, you know, trying to ramp myself up back into uh, the rea cold reality of, of uh, life. And I, I'm talking to one of our portfolio companies, CEO, and just sort of regular monthly connection on, okay, what's going on? How's the business? How are you thinking about fundraising? Um, are there any introductions that uh, I or my partners can make? Uh, how can we be helpful? Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm ending the week talking actually to a couple insurance carriers as prospective investors in Semperverance, right? You know, always got to be fundraising uh, when you're in venture capital, right? You're not just writing the checks. You're also seeking the checks. Uh, and I, you know, I think that the things we do are actually a really nice fit uh, for uh, certain insurance carriers as strategic investors. So having some of those conversations as well. And, uh, you know, look, I can't get away from emails. Uh, <laughs> we'd love to get away from it. But I mean, actually, I, I, I say that I actually... I actually like well thought out emails. I, I spent, uh, I spent probably 30 minutes today. Um, like th this is the reality stuff. Like one of the CEOs that, uh, uh, I'm involved with, uh, he was asking about, Hey, you've talked about horizontal accounting. What does that mean? Right. And can you give me an examples of it or how does this work? What does it look like? And so like the easiest thing was just, okay, look, I'll, I'll whip up on a spreadsheet, uh, an illustrative, Horizontal accounting, like here's kind of what I mean, right? It's I could say a thousand words, but one spreadsheet speaks more than a thousand words, as <laughs> the old saying goes. And then, uh, you know, I, I I try to be really thoughtful about explaining what the spreadsheet meant, so he could understand it. Uh, and I'm happy to talk to him about it too. But like sometimes having a little prose to help there, and I don't think it was the kind of thing that uh, ChatGPT could necessarily. Uh, that's, ooh, that's a good. After this, I'm gonna. That would be a good prompt for it. I've been yeah. I've been prompting it with all kinds of things. So yeah. yeah explain horizontal accounting. That was actually good thought work because I feel like I'm helping the CEO and using one of the few things I actually know about uh, to be able to help him. So that, that's kind of my week. Yeah. Awesome. So um, let's let's dive into 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 funding and venture capital. Uh, I'm a 22 year bootstrapped entrepreneur. Started with five thousand bucks in my dorm room in 2001. You know, today I've got 280 employees, and and you know we've had an exit. We've built product. We have we have three three companies. Um, 
we had, we had four, sold one of them. So I've been through the life cycle of a bootstrapped entrepreneur. I'm now an LP at some VC VC funds and, and I'm, I'm enjoying uh, the insight and the different perspective that gives. It appears that the growth at all costs model is changing and it needs to. It's needed to for some time. Let's talk about growth at all costs, greater fool theory, because, yeah. you know, a lot of growth at all costs was predicated on greater fool theory that you could you could offload a company you 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 could you would you would dump massive amounts of cash into spending at a company ramp revenue without worrying about the ability to be profitable and then dump it or exit before you had to prove you could be profitable you know and 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 hopefully whoever bought you you know would be able to bury it in their financials or or figure out the profitability model how has the funding environment changed now with a much stodgier public market not willing to underwrite massive losses and companies that can't make money Look, for the most part, I'm a big fan of the pullback in valuations, including public market value. Like, like it, it was silly math, right? And gosh, easy for you to say that now, Caribou. Um, <laughs> but like, it, it was kind of silly math. And I think there's, what we're seeing is a reckoning on two dimensions. And one doesn't bother me at all. One, like, is sort of a different, different character. So valuations, right? Like valuation, don't think about, oh, well, that's a billion or 2 billion or 200 million, right? Think about in terms of valuation multiples, right? Oh, are you, are you yep. paying 5X revenue or 10X revenue or 50X revenue, right? Okay, yeah. Look, if you are getting 50X revenue, right? And, and not off of $5, off of 5 million or something, like, all right, you, you are very good at selling and somewhat lucky, very good lucky with timing. Um, but that doesn't mean that that was like a legitimate uh, valuation built connected to your fundamentals. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, of you know, we've now seen a reversion to something much more historic kind of revenue multiples in it. Arguably the pendulum has swung farther, you know, the pendulum, you see a couple of these cycles, the pendulum goes back and forth and back and forth on this. Um, the, uh, uh, but you know, look, that, that's a, that's a valuation multiple question. And, you know, we can, we can, we can start to build some sensible ranges around that. You know, I don't have any blame or any sympathy for the founders who raise money at really high valuations or really high multiples, as long as they recognize that they were boxing themselves in a little bit and might have to take money at a lower valuation, something like that. If, if they took too much money, that actually does start to cause some second order issues for them. Um, and, and entrepreneurs, you, you know, you tend to spend the, to architect your business to the capital you've got. Yeah. Uh, and so that can, be, which takes me to the second aspect, which is, um, much more pernicious if it's in, in a company, which is if you've got lousy unit economics, I mean, look, mm-hmm. we, we are in many ways products of our early training, right? I was, my early training was at capital one, right? We were very rigorous in thinking about the unit economics. And we, we would look at competitor uh, products and we would try to reverse engineer their NPV model. And there were lots of instances where we'd like, yeah, we can't actually understand how they're going to make money on that product with our assumptions that we know about even for their business. We don't think they can make money. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, they blow up. All right. Then, you know, plus one for rational economics. <laughs> uh, when, when, when rational economics apply, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I hate competing with an irrational competitor. As do I, because it's it, it's extremely challenging. And when they have irrational investors behind them who are willing to to foot right. to foot a four or five year bill um, with a with irrational unit economics, it's very, very difficult competing against yeah. that. I mean I mean competing against dumb 
competitors, great. Competing against smart competitors, fine. But competing against irrational competitors, those who are running negative economics and don't even realize it. Like, oh, yeah. right. Because you, you just got to sort of hold on for a while. Um, but then, you know. It's a greater fool. Yeah, someone else has to come along and bail them out. But they, they assume but, it's going to happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, they get high on their own supply. My, my days at QED were also formative from a venture investing perspective. Because first off, we weren't a big fund, right? We started with like a $30 million pool of capital, right? And the basic premise was for as far as out as we could see, we were going to take no additional capital. That 30 million was it. So if we were going to do follow-ons, right? Yeah. Great, right? But it's got to outcompete writing a new check into some other company. Um, there was no real distinction that me meant much between fund one, fund two, fund three, right? Because if you're going to write a check into fund two, it just means you're not writing it out of into a follow-on in fund one, right? Um, one common pool of capital. So capital efficiency when we were looking at startups to invest in was actually really important, right? Partly because we, we certainly did not have the deep pockets to like keep throwing money at them. Uh, but also just like if we we're going to get good return, not terribly diluted, right, you needed the capital efficiency. So it's no surprise that like our biggest winner uh, from fund one was this little company called Credit Karma mm. right? <laughs> that was also very focused on unit economics and rational sort of if I spend a dollar, you know, promoting the fact that you can get a truly free credit score from me, right? then does that actually generate the customers that I can then offer really good appropriate credit products and get my paid my cut when they take it? Like that's, that was our kind of business, right? Capital efficient and rational and a great value proposition. It was, it was actually elegant, right? A great value proposition for the consumer, right? Because mm -hmm. back then, like in practice, you had to pay uh, this subscription to freecreditreport.com. That wasn't actually free. Uh, <laughs> it was also elegant because it, it served the lenders really well, right? It actually brought them applications from people who were kind of appropriate for the product that the lender was offering and for the underwriting policy. Like that made sense. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we really liked businesses that made sense and as a consequence could be capital efficient. So let, let's talk about that as it plays out, right? And you, um, you look at capital efficient businesses or, or businesses that have the ability to actually add value. And, and let's look at the current insure tech market because there are some highly irrational valuations, people's rounds, and, and they knew the they, they knew the winner was coming at some point. And so they started raising some pretty large rounds to get them through, you know, two, three, four years of runway. So you could argue that like right now we're like a year into everyone's round that and they're not going to want to raise again right now because they're, they don't want to take a down round or, or write down the valuation right yeah but but they didn't they didn't uh, I'll, I'll push back against that a little bit james i don't think they actually raised three or four years of runway you don't think they knew the winner was because coming? so one of one of Many the, them say they did but, well, yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the foundational principles here is entrepreneurs will architect their business model to the capital they've got yeah right and, and, you know, we saw that years ago, actually, with some of the, you know, the mega soft bank rounds, right? And then the mega tiger rounds that would come in. And I'm not referring specifically to insure tech or even to fintech. You would see these companies that, you know, oh, I'm raising 50 million. And SoftBank says, well, it, that's not enough. What if you, what, how would you spend 250 if you had it? Yeah. Well, an entrepreneur is going to take that bait often and figure out ways to spend it. <laughs> 
They're going to arc, and, and some of it will be ring fenced into you know GNA, but a lot of it will actually go into um, sort of the gross margin structure and architecting the business in a way that you know is often not healthy. Um, and, and so, oh yeah, on my old plan that would have given me four years of of runway, but now that I got the money and money looks cheap for a while, uh, and I'm being pushed by this new investor to grow sort of hyper fast, right, at all costs, well, maybe I got to, you know, maybe I got to accelerate my my burn. Eh, you know, I still, still have two years of runway. That's fine. Um, problem is when the music stops, right, they've got a, a sort of unit economic architecture that just isn't all that efficient necessarily because they architected for all that capital. But we're seeing this happen, right? The pr- prices were too low. We have some insure techs who underpriced their products. They went to market with underpriced products and, t- and some irrationally uh, underpriced, some intentionally underpriced, um, some just screwed up the, ma- the math. I mean, it, it's, I think, I think you, you kind of fall into all three buckets and, you know, they have, they have really bad loss ratios, um, really, really bad. And, you know, it, it is, is, um, is the game over for them? Because, you know, if they, to, to, to get to where, to get to where they have to be break even, even right. Like they're just, just to, just to tread water, they'd have to increase prices so much that they would lose most of their business, right? Like a slick way of getting a quote bind and pay doesn't help when, you know, you, you've got to increase your renewals by 25% to stay afloat as a company. People will bail over rate. Even even though you have an easy user experience, right? So, is it the over? Uh, I'll, I'll start by speaking mostly in generalities. <laughs> mostly, I was trying I mean, to speak um, in generalities without speaking know, about a specific company. <laughs> 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 well, look, there, there's there's a company I know in particular. Um, prior investment went public last year, and um, you know, last I checked. You know, market cap around a billion dollars, maybe billion two, on like four hundred million dollars of revenue, growing forty percent year over year, and not quite break even, but not that far off, burning yeah. you know maybe a couple tens of millions, right? But not burning sixty or eighty million a year. Like fine, the losses so, aren't accelerating. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, what gives? With that? like, why is this company getting a three x, three x revenue run rate when it's growing forty percent? And has pretty mm-hmm. good gross margins and so on. And, and my simple man's view is what's going on there is uh, I know 3x revenue run rate is the wrong multiple. I know that for an absolute certainty. It should either be in the ballpark of 10x, long-term historical kind of stuff, or totally reasonable that it, maybe it should be 0x. Right? Maybe it's not going to make it. There's some deep flaw on it. It's hard to tell you know, from afar. So maybe it should be 0x. Maybe it should be 10x. I just know it can't be 3x in the long run as the right answer. But of course, 3x is coming out as the sort of you know, probabilistic weighted average that the market's giving it because the market can't figure out. Is this a long-term, sustainable, healthy, high-growth business? Oh, yeah, 10x. Or is it sort of deeply flawed fundamentals and kind of going out of business, 0x? That's the debate. And, and so as... The answer to that won't be a mystery forever. No. Right. Whether it takes a few quarters or a few years, that will get revealed. Because if it's fundamentally flawed, right, that's going to show up at some point here in quarters or a couple years at most. And if it keeps growing and, uh, 
uh, scales and the gross margins, right? Like I say, are actually quite good. So as the gross margin at time scale starts to o- overwhelm the GNA, like, oh yeah, you do start to generate some cash there and profitability. So we're, we're going to see these split. Now, so, so that's at a company, public company, you know, billion dollar, give or take market cap. Then you look at the companies where it's maybe now a hundred million dollar market cap, right? And, mm-hmm. and I don't have to name names, right? Um, <laughs> but the, uh, you, you look at those and they're burning like 10, 15 million a quarter, right? And, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's basically like, they're almost, as far as I can tell, they're kind of boxed out of raising capital, right? Cause they're public and, you know, so to raise capital is a different ball game there. Um, raising capital at the hundred million dollar valuation, right. Is going to you know, cause all sorts of second order issues as well. Um, and you know, it's, it's, and they're not necessarily, and they're not growing anymore either. So they're not really, you know, fitting that kind of mold. So I don't know how they escape the gravity well that they're falling into. I don't, I don't, I don't think they have enough fuel to escape. That's, that's the, that's yeah. the real question for me is we're talking about the ability for these companies to actually become profitable before they run out of cash. Um, or yeah. become break even because you're not going to fund accelerating losses and especially when the core fundamentals, their core loss ratios yeah. don't look good. And right. it's, it's, it's really interesting to me on, on what, on certainly what's happening and um, you know, valuation multiples needed to come back down to, to earth uh, a little bit. So this is a necessary and good correction. And certainly financial discipline is a, is a, is a good thing as well. Rob, I know you've got a, I know you've got a, a an, an angle on this. Oh, yeah, well, so um, I'm curious. I'd love to hear from from both of you, right? Because uh, James, I mean, that story about right, kind of bootstrapping, starting your dorm room in, in 2001. And I don't know if that time, if if you've looked into VC money or not, but you know, there's a couple factors at play here from my perspective. And Kira, we would love your 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 thoughts on this in terms of just the growth of VC in general. Like to me, this was kind of a Silicon Valley phenomenon. It wasn't, you know, I was very focused on the public market. I started my early career at the Federal Reserve. We had a lot of alums that went down to Richmond and, and Cap One. So I uh, definitely familiar with that move. And, you know, over time, right, like it feels like VCs are everywhere. People are going public markets last, or they're going to be a lot more mature because of all the regulatory standards, whatnot. And, and there's been a push, not just, you know, in, in like New York and Silicon Valley, but people are looking for, for investment opportunities all over the U S all over the world. Uh, you mentioned the limited partners, Caribou. I know I've been on the, uh, both, you know, work with folks when I was at USA and the corporate venture side, when I was at AF group and we partnered with a, a VC that we were a limited partner with. So I've, I've, I've been on that side of it as a, as a partner, not necessarily a, in, in the VC world as well, but I've just, uh, you know, you have kind of the phenomena of more and more funding, right. Becoming available, particularly through limited partners and just everyone's trying to get you know, in on the action in some ways. And then this like historic zero, near zero interest rate, right? Landscape for an entire decade following the great financial crisis. Well, now, right? Inflation and the rise in interest rates, we're seeing that. I don't know if the supply of venture capital is also, you know, if the taps are, 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 are turning off just in terms of like the, the, the amount of money you're able to raise and others, right? From limited partners, or if it's simply just a cost of capital phenomena. So maybe you could just like, if, if I'm, I'm thinking about if I'm a founder out there, 
and I'm trying to make this decision between going the bootstrap way or, or maybe looking to raise funding, knowing that the environment isn't what it was, was right, 18 to 24 months ago, maybe you can just help with what is the VC landscape today? And then, you know, if I'm, if, if, if you've got some entrepreneurs out there, some founders that are trying to figure out how to position their new startup, if you guys have any advice for them. Yeah. There's a couple questions in there, Rob, to unpack. Sorry. So I'll, I'll try not to. They're all great questions. I'm just not sure which one to tackle first. Look, so so I'll, I'll break it basically. I mean, Yes, is is the funding environment for venture capital, like for for firms like Semperverance, is it a tougher environment to raise new funds? For sure, it's definitely a tougher environment than it was a year ago. Um, it's not in a possible environment, and you know, especially we've got a, a pretty healthy track record and a, a really differentiated sort of reason why we think we deserve to exist, and that's resonating. But you know, it's still a lot tougher uh, market than it was a year, year and a half ago. Now, for the entrepreneurs out there. Right. You're really asking two questions like, should I and can I? Right. Can I raise venture capital? Right. Well, look, simple rules of thumb here. Like, like a year and a half ago, can you? Do you breathe? Great. You can raise venture capital. <laughs> Maybe you should or shouldn't, but can you breathe? Great. Sure. I'm exaggerating a little. <laughs> um, uh, today, like great companies with great profiles are still getting funded and getting funded at healthy valuation. What makes for great, you know, again, sort of checklist for the entrepreneurs out there. Are you growing three X plus year over year? Check. Right. Do you have healthy gross margins? Right. Now healthy can depend a little bit. Are you truly a software company? Are you tech enabled? You know, if you're running 80% gross margins, yippee. If you're tech enabled and you're running 40, 50% gross margins, that's still really solid. Right. That says that you're, you're doing something with some pricing power. That's great. If you got 30% gross margin, you're probably not a fit for today's venture capital market. Um, and then, um, you know, essentially how much capital do you actually consume, right? Uh, in order to, to get to your destination, right? If, if you're very capital consumptive, okay, I may make some VCs nervous now. Um, uh, if you have a fair bit of capital efficiency, Right, then that that's important, right? Uh, th so those companies are getting funded, right? High gross margin, high growth rate, decent capital efficiency. If you're sort of you know two x to three x growth, middling you know gross margin, consuming a fair bit of capital, maybe you know if you're if your top line growth is below two x, if your gross margins are below 40 percent, right? If you're very capital consumptive, no, you probably can't raise venture capital, you know, absent some very special circumstances. So let's say you can raise venture capital, right? Maybe you're at the, the two and a half X growth or above. You've got good gross margins and improving and so on. Um, doesn't mean you should. Uh, and I think it's, it's really the, the nerdiest way I have to put it. Uh, but it's actually like probably the closest to truth and beauty is that when a VC is writing a check, and I'm thinking sort of mid to early stage VC, not like late growth of capital, they are expecting at least... 40% rate of return on that check. Now, they know that some of the companies will give them 0% or negative 100%, and some will give hopefully 80, 90% rate of return on that. But, uh, you know, expected value, what they are, are building their case around, even if they don't say it this way, is basically 40% IRR. So if you as an entrepreneur say, okay, if I get some incremental money into my business, I think I can get it to return 25% rate of return. 
you should not raise venture capital. You shouldn't be able to, but you should not even if someone offers it to you because they will be disappointed, right, if you deliver what you think you can. And that's a recipe for all sorts of pain and suffering. And you may lose a lot more of your company and more control of it than you thought you would, right, even though you delivered that 25% IRR. Because they, the VC will structure the terms often, right, to sort of plan around that 40%. If you say, I can, if you give me a million dollars, VC, I believe actuarially that I can turn that into a, put that into a money machine, right, and generate a dollar sixty, right, back at you in a year. Like, all right, that's a good use of venture capital because it's above the underlying hurdle, right, and if you deliver then your VC will be happy and you will be happy because you'll be generating excess value right, in the course of that. Um, now, I'm sure a finance professor could tear apart some technical aspects of what I'm saying here, but like that, that's the sort of underlying thing. Like, Do you really have that kind of use of proceeds right, where you actually believe as the entrepreneur that you're going to generate in excess of 40% rate of return on that? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't. Now, even if the answer is yes, then it's still a question of do you need it, right? What's the, what's the delta there? Because you do give up some elements of control. Um, you do uh, give up some of the upside almost by definition, right? And that's sort of getting back to this question, well, if you can grow it at 60, 70, 80% IRR on using that capital, then actually you're, the theory is you're growing, you can grow the pie bigger, faster, by having that capital rather than not. Um, but look, I, I love capital efficiency and I really respect entrepreneurs that can bootstrap basically all the way through up until the point where, you know, the company is worth hundreds of millions of dollars because yeah. the the val because the scale of it is so big, at which point it's really just, you know, raising capital opportunistically because it's it's sort of it's cheap, right? If the company's worth three hundred million dollars by the time I'm raising my first VC money, so to speak. I can take in 30 million bucks and it only costs me 10% of the company. All right. That's a, that's a, then you probably should when you can. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Really good advice. And, and honestly, I think it's a much better explanation of when you should and shouldn't raise money than anything I've read in a textbook. Um, it's really about IRR and if you can hit above or below the expectation, because I mean, certainly in the funds that I'm in, you know, they, they have pretty high expectations of internal rate of return for the, for the money and uh, you know otherwise you just go to the public markets or you'd go to you know fixed income gets a good return right now and you can plant your money in treasuries right now and make four and a half percent with yeah. no downside risk whatsoever and uh it so there, there's a lot of places that investors can can make sure money all right we have to we have to wrap but i'm going to do some rapid fire questions all right caribou are you ready can you hold hold on to your hat hold on to your hat i'm ready all right i'll tighten the hat we're good. So we're going to do a, there's a couple of rapid fire questions to close out. And I am going to ask your opinion on things and it's okay to pick one and, and not, not worry about defending anybody else. Okay. So first your favorite portfolio company. Oh, and, that is mean. So I'm really partial to a company called CoverGo, okay. which is a provider of no code for the insurance industry. What okay. a part of what I really like about it is that it's, it's probably our most international company. It's actually nice. based in Hong Kong, but it has, and it's expanding into the U.S., but it's got, it's got customers in like five continents now, which is stunning to me. Awesome. Cover go. Next one. Favorite topic, not, not individual speech, but favorite topic at ITC right now, like the one, the topic that just jazzes you. Ooh, that's a good one. You know, 
I do like embedded insurance. Nice. Every, but the problem is everyone likes embedded insurance. So that, that's uh, too much of a, a cop out. That's okay. It's your uh, answer. I, I like invisible insurance as a topic, which no one is talking about. In, in other words, in other words, bundling it in with the, the products so there's not a... <laughs> so embedded that you're not even allowed to opt out. So, so yeah. we, we start to lose sight of it. Like your car warrants, if you buy a new Ford, right, you can't tell the dealer, oh, I will, if you take $500 off of it, I will yeah, promise warranty. I'll sign a contract and not do any warranties. Nope, you can't do it. If you go to the doctor and say, okay, I'll waive my right to sue you for malpractice if you, you know you know, take 50 bucks off the bill, which is probably how much it costs for your malpractice insurance pro rata. Like they'll say, I'd love to, but no, I can't. You have to buy malpractice insurance implicitly, invisibly when you go to the doctor. Like that's interesting. Next favorite event that is not ITC. (laughs) Blueprint. Yeah, um, I, fig- so, I figured you're going to say blueprint. So I got so it. many. Like, <laughs> blue, yeah, look, it, it's the ITC of prop tech. Right, yeah, so. it's a good event too. We we uh, we went to we went to blueprint last year. Oh, awesome! Uh, favorite technology you're playing with right now? I mean, okay, Chat GPT. Chat is GPT. Fine. Yeah, and, and so I've got <laughs> I've got to ask it like explain horizontal accounting and see if it if it knows that. Like that, yeah. that'll be my my next thing here. Favorite non insurance podcast. Ooh, if I said I don't listen to podcasts, then you're probably going to be mean and be bad. You'd be yeah. a naughty boy. Mine is Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. Ooh, he he's it's a, it's, the, it's just an amazing amazing history podcast. I I I, I listen to the occasional NPR. How about okay, that? fair enough. Uh, best book you've read recently? It was about two or three years ago, but it it sticks with me to the point where I think I want to reread it. Is the Three Body Problem series? Okay. Awesome. If, if you've not read that, I have not. it's uh, Chinese. Um, my Mandarin is a little bit rusty, so I read the translation. Um, the first like 50 pages, really hard to get through. It's like, what's going on here? And then it's like, oh my gosh. And uh, so the, the, the three body problem, which is a trilogy, is just amazing. And my wife loves it. And my, one of my sons read it and loves it. So. And lastly, since you're fresh back from Belize, other than Belize, your favorite vacation spot? Mm, I would have said uh, Santa Fe, Taos, northern New Mexico. Mm. I will now say uh, St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh, yeah. And the reason I say that instead of Santa Fe, northern New Mexico, is because six months ago, we relocated and moved to Santa Fe, northern New Mexico. So <laughs> it's no longer a vacation spot. It's where I live. It's home. That's great. Well, St. John's great. Two-thirds of the islands. uh national park and it's uh super chill i i uh, i love it that was my first place i i ever gave a speech 400 speeches ago was uh at uh st thomas st croix st john I, I went around the islands and gave gave speeches there in nice. 2005 so it's been a while wow been a while uh, it's awesome well caribou it's always great having you on the show it's great talking to you i'm excited about uh what you're up to and I really appreciate you being on. Well, thanks so much. Uh, really enjoyed this. Yeah. Rob, always good to see you, brother. Absolutely. Great to see you again, James Caribou. Great to see you as well. Thanks for being on. And thank you for tuning in today to geek out for our interview with Caribou Honig from InsureTech Connect and Semperverance. Uh, again, this has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge, jbknowledge.com. It's all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith at endofinsurance.com. Thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer, and thank you for joining us today. Look forward to talking with you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech.
So enjoy the ride and geek out.